Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Those are the first seven verses of Psalm 37, the first 18 verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Thursday, March the 3rd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are looking today at Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 11. Um, the, the gospel is John 1, verses 29 to 34, and the epistle is the first 16 verses of chapter 1 of Paul's letter to Titus. So <clears throat> we just passed through... Uh, Ash Wednesday yesterday, and so now we're we're moving into this new season. We've moved out of Epiphany, which is about the continuing revelation of Jesus throughout his life, and we're moving now into Lent, uh, which is a season where we prepare ourselves for the joy of Easter, and the way that we do that is by making ourselves more fit. We, We acknowledge and deal with sin in our lives. We deal also with those things in our lives that have displaced him, along the way. And so we're making room, making more room for him in our lives. We're cleaning out our lives of those things that take up too much of our time and energy and attention and don't provide any return, really, for them. Hopefully what we're saying is is that we waste a lot of time, (laughs) and that time could be spent in God's Word or in prayer or in service. So hopefully what we're doing is preparing ourselves to receive the, the great good news of the resurrection at the end of this 40-day season. So it, it's all going to be about, for that period of time, what kind of people we should be. So that's what we're going to be looking at. So it begins today with, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And it's an interesting place to start, to say the least, because it's not really a good starting place, to be honest with you. So for you are a people holy to God begs the question about what came before that that, that, that introduces the four, <laughs> you're a holy people. So what, it, what is it? And what it's talking about is driving out the nations that are in the land now. And, and they're told to make... You destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Don't intermarry with them. Don't give your daughters and sons, because if you do, then they're going to turn your children away from following me after other gods. This is what you're to do. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are holy people holy to the Lord your God. That's exactly what precedes that. In other words, that, that you're to be a people holy to the Lord your God, but the only way you can do that is to destroy the worship of everything else and not to intermarry with people who, who worship other gods. So that's what the for you are a people holy to the Lord refers to. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That's an extraordinary statement, right? But it's true of us. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You and I are part of God's treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Maybe we ought to act like it. Maybe people ought to see, oh, wait, they're different. There should be something different, and that's exactly the point of this passage. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you, the fewest of all peoples. What seems odd to say that, but, but they were in Egypt, remember, and why were they in slavery? Because they were afraid, the Egyptians were, that they had become so numerous that they would join with their enemies. So they, there were a lot of them, but... What he said is, compared to the nations, you were nothing at all. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. It's so, why did God choose them? Because God loved them. It was his sovereign choice. And for whatever reason, he decided that he loved those enslaved people. And, he, and he, it's because of Abraham, because he chose him. It's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And these are people in the wilderness to whom Moses is speaking here. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. Again, this is from uh, Exodus 34. They count on the knowledge, the self-revelation of God as to who he was, that they must all, they and we must always count on that self-revelation that God gave to Moses in 34, in Exodus 34, and then confirmed over and over again to his people. Instead of destroying them, he would send them into exile and then he'd bring them back. And he never abandoned or forsook his people, never broke his covenant with them. And then what we see is that self-revelation of God, that, that he is gracious and merciful, it extends to others. And it was always intended to extend to others. It was always supposed to be a place for others to come into the covenant community. And so the self-revelation of God in Exodus 34 is expanded in the self-revelation of God in the death and resurrection of Christ, beginning with the incarnation. Because all along the way, he says, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, but if he came into contact with people who were not, he didn't treat them differently. If they needed healing and asked for it, he would give it. And so we've got to see that, that the way he loved everybody, not just Jews, in his community, but everybody, is extended to us, and we're to extend that love to the rest of the world as well. We're to be like him in that way, but, but that self-revelation was reinforced and extended in the life of Christ. He says, it, now after, after he says what a faithful God he is, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, he says he repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. In other words, I'm not going to wait until another generation to judge you. I'm going to deal with you now. <clears throat> you shall therefore be careful to do all the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. The way that we show him that we love him as he loves us is to do exactly what Moses said at the end there. Careful to do all the commandments and statutes and the rules that I command you today. 
And that's the way we show our love for him is, is that we believe that he is good and that his commandments are good. And that in doing those, our lives will be better. And we will maintain covenant relationship with him and experience the covenant blessings. In the gospel, we've you know, yesterday, because of Ash Wednesday, we, we got out of sequence on it. And so now we come back to John's gospel in the first chapter. And this is the next day he, and we're talking about John the Baptist here, saw Jesus coming toward him. This is after the baptism and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is a powerful, powerful statement. And it's an odd statement if you follow Jewish messianic thought. And if you follow even John's messianic thought for Jesus, because what he said was is that Jesus came into the world in order to bring judgment into the world, and, and now he's saying that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the sacrifice for the sin of the world, not for the sins of my people, but for the sin of the world. John sees something here that, that hardly anybody understood. We, don't, we know that even the disciples didn't understand it because they didn't understand when Jesus said that he was going to have to be crucified and raised on the third day. Nobody saw that. Nobody saw him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you wonder, what did John think that meant when he said that? He's speaking, obviously, under the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but what does he mean when he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Based on John's own message, it's a little confusing. So what did John know, and what did John believe? He, said, he goes on to say, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, he was pre-incarnate. So Jesus was there before his incarnation, is what John's saying. He, he was before me. And we know, based on the birth narratives, that he was actually born six months after John. But but John's saying there was a pre-incarnate Christ. He was before. And the proof of that is God's promise again and again and again of a Messiah. Therefore, he must already have existed. He said, I myself didn't know him. So even though they had this birth narrative connected with one another through their mothers who were cousins, John says, I didn't know him. I did not know who it was going to be. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, initially, you read that and you think, well, that's an enigmatic statement. So what does he mean, that he might be revealed to Israel through this my ministry of baptism? And then he goes on to explain what he means. He says, John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. It stayed there. It didn't just light and do a touch and go. No, it remained on him. I myself did not know him, he repeats that again, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So there could have been a counterfeit Messiah if the Spirit had come and and just done a touch and go. John could have said, "Uh uh-oh, there it is. But no, remained on him was something there. And so what John means when he says, for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel, what he's saying is, he's explaining that in the second passage, which is saying, I was given a sign, and I was supposed to look for that sign, and the only way that I was going to see that sign was to baptize. 
I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed. The promise was made that if I baptized, God would reveal him. And he would reveal him in a very specific way. And I knew what that sign was. He said, I'm not telling you in advance I knew who it was. Even though John had to have known all these stories, he's saying that wasn't enough to convince me that it was Jesus. No, I had to see a sign for myself. His mother had a sign. My mother had a sign. We all have a story. But, but I had a specific sign. And so I held whatever I might have believed in abeyance, waiting for that sign. And he says, and I've seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. When I got my sign, I began to proclaim him. I'm done now. I'm, my ministry is done because my ministry was to reveal Messiah. And I have. There he is. In the... Uh, letter to Titus today. It's similar to the letter that he writes to Timothy in some ways, because these are men that he has left behind to lead the churches wherever they were. And in Titus's case, that's on the island of Crete. And so Paul begins writing in the same way that he begins writing all his things. He, he authenticates himself, tells him who he is, and then Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life. In other words, my apostleship, and what an apostle is, is someone who is sent with a message. So he, is a, he bears a message from a, like, a, like an ambassador kind of a situation. They, they take a message from an important personage to other people. And he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Truth is important to Paul. Paul Paul's not going to talk about myths. He's going to talk about truths, which he defines in other places as the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He said that that knowledge of truth accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life. In other words, if, if it's not enough just to, quote, know the truth, you know, two and two is four. It's got to have a meaning. And it's, it's got to, to show itself in your life, which accords with godliness, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So God kept all this stuff, this mystery, and for a proper time, and now through the preaching of the word, the preaching of the truth about Jesus and about the Father— now is the time for this stuff to all be revealed. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. In other words, we needed a structure for all of this. We, we needed to make sure that, that they would continue in the truth. So we needed to make sure that, that this was this loose kind of thing actually had some leadership because leadership in, in Paul's reckoning and in everybody's reckoning is important. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And Paul obviously believed that. He said, if anyone is above reproach, in other words, if, if they have good character and a good reputation, if they're the husband of one wife and his children are believers— it's important that, that the man has control over his own household in such a way that his children have been taught the truth and that they have 
bought into and accepted those things as true. And he's not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So it's very clear that, that, that they're going to be subordinate to someone, but they need to be people of great character who, who have also then raised up their children in the faith. He says, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. The world must think highly of them, not just the church, but, the, but they, they have to have good character. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. In other words, his expectation for those who led the churches was they would be well-versed in the word of God that they would know how to teach and they would know how to rebuke anything that contradicted the truth. I've seen in way too many churches people raised up into leadership roles who would have been completely unable to do that. I was in a meeting one time with somebody who had, there was a group of people, and this person had been on the vestry, which is the lay leadership council of the church, had been on the vestry twice since I'd been at the church, and made the statement at one point, based on the sermon that had been preached that day, uh, the first lesson of which was from Leviticus, said, I, I, you know, I got these um, tapes on comparative religions for Christmas, and, and I wondered why we didn't have a law like other religions do. And I'm looking and thinking, how in the world could that person have been in a leadership position in the church and not know that there was a law? They, they don't even, they never even heard of Leviticus before. That person should not have been in a leadership position in the church, period, end of sentence. And, and we, we, the church, need to do a better job, certainly, than that. And that was a pretty good church. But, but when the priest left, it no longer was a pretty good church because it had the wrong leadership. And that wrong leadership then was responsible for choosing the next leader. And they, they couldn't refute stuff that was falsehood. He says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially among those of the circumcision party. Remember, Paul's constantly fighting the battle against those Judaizers who would come in and tell these people, no, 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 faith in Jesus is not enough. You've got to be circumcised and you've got to accept the law. You've got to do all these things. You've got to only eat kosher and all that. <clears throat> and Paul constantly had to fight with those people. He said, they must be silenced. You can't allow them to keep talking this nonsense since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Anything you add to Jesus, it detracts from him. That's the bottom line. Anything that you're required to do other than believe in Jesus is detracting from Jesus. And so that's exactly Paul's concern here. He says one of the Cretans, people on Crete, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. I'm not sure that I would slander a whole bunch of people like that, but <laughs> Paul has experience. And so he says, this is a testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. In other words, don't give any room for that nonsense. Cut it off at the knees. <clears throat> 
uh, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That's a pretty cynical summary. (laughs) But Paul is saying, because they don't believe that Jesus is all you need, and has done all the work necessary, they're not actually fit for good work because they're doing things for the wrong reasons. They're doing it to glorify themselves and believe that they're adding merit to their case for why God should ultimately save them. And, and what he's saying is, is that when they do that, they're denying Christ because they're not doing it for the love of God. They're doing it because they, they think they have to in order to earn their salvation. And Paul says, any notion, any notion at all, that you would earn your salvation has to be quashed immediately, because that is not the way it works. It's all on faith in Christ and the completed work of the cross and your agreement with God that he deserved to be resurrected from the dead.